This summer, I had a routine visit with my family doctor. I asked to have my ferritin checked because I was taking iron supplements and was curious where my levels are at. Ferritin is a marker of um, the amount of iron that you have stored. So she also did a few other things since I was already going to be poked anyway. Turned out my creatinine level was high, and so she started to worry about my kidneys. The thing is that I had done a medium long run the day before the test, and this was in the summer heat. Alan and I were already well into Pete Fitzinger and Scott Douglas's advanced marathon plan. Oh, God, I remember that. (laughs) Normally, I would be worried about this test result since we need our kidneys to live. But in today's book, I learned that reduced blood flow during running, dehydration, rise in body temperature, and muscle breakdown could all be factors in my slightly higher than normal test results. So I'll have to repeat the test to make sure everything is okay, but I'm not worried. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast where we review running books to help you decide if you would like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running, or maybe inspire you to try something new. My name is Liz, and with my co-host, Alan, we are going to talk with author Dr. Juliet McGratton about her book, Run Well, Essential Health Questions and Answers for Runners. So a little bit about Run Well. This book is a sort of question and answer format with a short introduction for each chapter based around what system we're talking about. So the the questions are grouped into chapters based on body systems, starting with the head, ending with the overall subject of self-care. Chapter introductions include drawings of relevant biology that you can refer to if you need to. Um, So you get a little biology, simple biology lessons so you know what's happening to your body. Throughout the book, there are real life runner stories, sort of did you know segments and summaries of things to try as well. So little practical tips and tricks. Uh, and at the end of each chapter, there are also resources that you consult if you want more information. So let me tell you a bit about uh, our author, Dr. Juliette McGratton. She's a medical doctor, um, has worked in, I guess, medical, GP medical practice for, for years and years and years. There's now an author and runner. And Run Well's not her first book. She wrote her first book, Sorted, The Active Woman's Guide to Health, in 2017. And it won first place at the British Medical Association Book Awards. Wow. These accomplishments alone are extraordinary, but Dr. McGratton is also an international speaker, a freelance writer, a podcast host, founder and director of 261 Fearless Club UK. Maybe we'll find a little bit out a little bit more about that. She's a master coach and women's health lead for the 261 Fearless Global Women's Running Network and has appeared on national television and radio. Welcome, Juliet. Thank you very much. That was a nice introduction. <laughs> it's, yeah, lots of hats. Oh, I hope we didn't miss anything with all of that. Well, I guess we can add in the three kids and a dog and all the other things that go on with a busy life. Which are often the most... <laughs> Brilliant accomplishments and achievements, yeah. And she she has three kids and hasn't gone mad yet. Um, <laughs> I know that because I have three. So what inspired you to write this book? You're obviously well qualified to write it, but what inspired you to do this? Yeah, I think as I was growing up, my 
dad was always really good at explaining things to me. He would lie down in bed at night next to me. Instead of reading me a story, he would tell me about how something worked. And I remember him explaining how televisions worked and how radios worked. I don't think he could now explain how the internet works. But, you know, in those days, I just thought it was amazing. And the way he used to break it down and get the information across to me was in a way that I could really, really understand it. And, And I really developed this sort of love of learning through medicine as I was doing as a career, but actually trying to make things understandable and put them really into context for the person that was listening. And when I had my running journey, I didn't start till quite late. I was in my thirties and I really knew nothing about running. I knew a lot about the human body, but I didn't know anything about running. I didn't know what shoes to get. I didn't know how to start a training program, et cetera. And as I went along that journey, I realized how much medicine there was with running and how as a doctor, I had absolutely no idea how to answer the kind of medical related running questions that people would ask me because I was a doctor. So I, I, as I came across these problems and as people asked me these questions, I really saw that there was a need to break things down, to explain them, to make them understandable and to make something that was really useful for runners. You know, doctors are really busy and here in the UK, you know, you don't really want to go and bother them. People would say, oh, I don't really want to bother the doctor. But if there's something that's stopping you running, stopping you do your hobby, stopping you keeping fit and healthy, then, you know, those questions are really important. So I just wanted to, yeah, create a little resource that runners could turn to where they would get some information and if necessary, get some signposting. They may not get all the answers, but they would know when they should go and seek sort of further help. So that was that was my aim. I, ho- I hope that I have achieved it. <laughs> I, th- I think there's a general, um, it's probably a bit of a joke, but people say in the, in the running club, oh, don't go and see your doctor. They'll tell you to stop running. And that's useless <laughs> advice. That's because we're not going to follow that. So there's, uh, there's always kind of that sort of joke that doctor's going to give you the wrong advice, which is, well, if it, if it hurts when you run, don't run. Oh, duh. We're not going to do that. Um, cause runners are somewhat focused. Um, and they're Absolutely. always looking to give me some advice so that I can keep running. Yeah. And, and I didn't understand that when, as a non-runner, I didn't understand how intrinsic running becomes into your life and how important it is for you to cope with life and perform well in life and manage all those other things you're doing. So I didn't really see how much of an issue it was if you told somebody not to run, just go and, I don't know, go cycling, go swimming. I just didn't really understand that until I was a runner. I think it does depend on which doctor you go and see. Um, Certainly, in the practice that I was at, the doctors were all very active. So they would be very unlikely to give you that piece of advice. But there are many doctors who have have very, very little training in any kind of sports related medicine. And that's not their fault. That's just the path of training that they've come through. So there is that that risk. Sometimes you do have to be strict with a runner and you do have to say it's really not a good idea that you run for X number of time. But at least you have an understanding of the impact of those words. I, th- I think you're right. Anna. They just it. it yeah, it's a joke, but it's it's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you end up collecting all these questions? Because I mean, there I I don't there were a lot of questions, and some of them are sort of like very common, others are not so common. And I'm sure there are some questions that maybe didn't make the cut. So how did you how did you kind of narrow it down? And um were you how 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 were you collecting all of those uh questions that ended up making it into the book? 
Yeah, sure. So I definitely collected my own questions. I, I took myself right back to the beginning of my running journey. What didn't I know? Because I think you very, very quickly forget what you didn't know. So mm-hmm. I started right back at the beginning of my running journey and tried to remember what I wanted to know, what I was looking up. When I was fairly early on in my running journey, but quite passionate about running, I started writing for Women's Running Magazine in the UK. And my role there was to answer reader questions those that were people that were reading the magazine or the website, et cetera. So I I did get asked hundreds of questions over the years through that role. And that's a role that that I carry on with. And also I was helping out at UK Run Chat, which is a a UK sort of uh, running community online. And I would have questions coming from them. Then some of the situations, some of the chapters, I would I would do a little search online and I would look in the forums and I would see what are people asking because there are so many running forums quite worrying when you saw some of the answers because not always the best place to go for for medical information so I yeah that that's how I did it and I, and I just worked my way through each system I had friends and um, running friends who read the book before it was printed etc and commented if they thought there was a question that should be asked a different way or there's something else they thought of so friends family runners online magazines everything just putting them all together I know there'll be things that I missed and and I already think of things oh I should have put that in but uh yeah you can't I know I'm never going to answer everything but I've had a pretty good stab at making it as complete as possible I suspect you have because one of the things I started doing as I was reading the book was thinking about the things that I normally ask, like, oh, I've got a headache after the run. You know, what, what's happening? Do I have a brain tumor or is it normal? <laughs> you know, those kind of things. And I found that, uh, you know, everything that I sort of would generally think of, normally I think people go, oh, my knee hurts or you mm. know, some, some muscular problem or something. But also all the other things around running that I could think of that tended to pop up good (laughs) even some of the anecdotes I noticed that you started to to throw in did you know you know uh, kidneys can filter how many liters of water or whatever and I thought aha because I'm come from pharmaceutical training I did biology and I, I know a few of these stupid did you know things because I'm a guy and we collect useless pieces of information. <laughs> and I thought, I'll bet she doesn't have, did you know, if you fold out your lungs, they will cover the surface area will be the same as a tennis court. Ah, Juliet will not, will not know that. And sure enough, you had it there on one of your, one of your, did you knows? I thought, God damn, the woman's a genius. <laughs> Oh, well, I did get caught out when my a guy at my husband's running club said, uh, I was thinking about buying your wife's book. Is there anything in there about bunions? So he came to ask me because I don't think he's read it yet. Uh, is there anything in there about bunions? I was like, no, there's not. <laughs> but, you know, maybe I need to have a second, have things yeah. to put in a second edition. <laughs> yeah. Either a second edition or maybe an appendix. Ah. <laughs> just <laughs> add all the things we, we think about while we're having this conversation, maybe. That's right. I'm sure we'll come up with extra ones that aren't in there. (laughs) And, you know, I had to research a lot of things because, yes, I I knew the answers to lots of these questions, but I really wanted to make sure that the information I gave had some evidence base to it and wasn't just from one small trial that was done, you know, somewhere in in the world that, that, that did actually 
yeah, have a good base behind it, which sometimes meant that it wasn't easy to answer the question or there wasn't necessarily a, a right or wrong answer because a lot of the time in research, you, you don't come up with a solution. So I needed to be quite yeah. honest. And I've tried to carry that all through my medical career. Really, you know, if there's something you don't know, you say, I don't know. Or if the evidence isn't clear, you give the pros and the cons. And that's why people should buy this book and not go Googling things. Because <laughs> this book, if, you know, if I can just get on my own hobby horse, this book has all the research behind all of the responses. In fact, you know, the articles are all listed at the back. And you can be confident that the responses are based in, in some factual science, as opposed to asking Mr. Google, and then you get, or asking the guy you're running with, then you get the opinion <laughs> of, of the public opinion rather than the research best answer. So you can be confident mm. in what's being said in the book, given that it comes from reference articles that you, that you list at the back. The first, the first section was the, was the head and uh, you included like mental health related questions. And one of the things that we actually hear runners uh, say a lot is how well running is, you know, uh, that's how they deal with, um, deal with mental health. And, uh, uh, you know, it seems like, well, running is their antidepressant kind of thing. And so does, uh, does running really help mental health? And does that mean that we don't need medication. Yeah. So, I mean, with my former, because I'm not practicing as, as a doctor anymore, but with my former GP hat on, I would say, please don't stop your medication without speaking to your doctor. <laughs> uh, I think it's always important to, to say that. But we do know and we're beginning to understand more and more how powerful exercise of all types, but particularly running is in terms of boosting and maintaining good mental health for so many reasons. You know, there's there's obviously the chemical changes that go on when you're exercising. So the release of all those endorphins and substances in your brain that are linked to uh, that are similar to cannabis and, and to morphine, you know, real powerful drugs if you like but there are body's own drugs so there are those chemical changes on that give you that, that give you that boost and that lift your mood or relieve anxiety or relieve stress but I think with running it it's more than that as well I, I think there's the social side so very often people go and you know run with others so you're getting a bit of social good social health which we know is vital for, for keeping you well but you've also got the almost meditative effects of, of running particularly powerful if you're doing it on your own and you've got that thud thud of your foot of your feet on the ground which again gives you this sort of meditative state which allows your mind to sort of wander and and I think it's that combination of all of those things including the fact that running can be so good for your self-esteem because you 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 select a running goal you select a training program you work towards it you succeed and, and that gives you a, a huge boost in your, in your self-belief and self-esteem and realizing what your body can actually do and something you can have control over. So that, that wonderful mix of all of those things, and probably more that I haven't mentioned, but I think makes it very, very powerful for good mental health. And in terms of medication, there are some studies that show that vigorous exercise like running can be as effective 
if not in some of the studies, more effective than an antidepressant. But I think interestingly, there are studies also that show it can sort of augment or increase or boost the effect of antidepressants that people are taking. So whilst I don't think it's a panacea and it's uh, it's it's for everybody and, you know, people with depression still need to see their doctor and severe depression, you know, still do need treatments. It can be a really great tool, a really great add on for keeping you well and for sort of helping you if you are struggling with your mental health, definitely that, that, you know, and I think I started running for the physical effects and the physical health and benefits, but actually when I realized the medical, the mental health benefits, that's, that's when I was sold. And that's when, that's what keeps me going back. That's what keeps me motivated. It's much more the mental health benefits. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, um, uh, you know, about the studies uh, on the effects on mental health, because uh, I remember this is more than a decade ago, I was working in a hospital, uh, it was a rural hospital, and I had heard about one of the psychiatrists, so I don't even know if it was like a, like an urban legend, or, uh, you know, because it was just somebody told me that there was a, a doctor um, in the in the psychiatry department that was prescribing to his patients. I mean, they were medicated as well, but he was prescribing to his patients like um, vigorous activity, 30 minutes, like three, three or five times a week, something like that. So uh, mm-hmm. I remember that from like over a decade ago. So that it's it's pretty interesting to to now see the, um, the research behind it. Yeah, I think very often or in in the past exercise has kind of been that small print uh, that add-on at the end certainly in my medical training you'd learn all about the pharmaceutical and the drugs and then there'd be oh and lifestyle at the bottom exercise Mm -hmm. and and really and it's very interesting in the UK a lot of work has been done on this and actually I had a job for about three years with Public Health England teaching healthcare professionals about exercise and how to speak to their patients about it and really trying to to reverse that and say actually this is this should be first line this is what you do first of all um and you look at your lifestyle exercise being a really important part of that because we know there's so much evidence now that exercise can reduce so many diseases can really have an important role in managing pain and all all sorts so really it it's the first prescription that we should be looking at and and most of the time it's free until you start buying really expensive shoes and Mm -hmm. and the side effects are minimal and in terms of comparing its effectiveness to a drug a lot of the time the 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 benefit in percentage that people are going to get the sort of reduction in their risk is bigger than for many of the medications that are available i'm thinking of things like coronary heart disease and reducing your cholesterol and things like that so really there isn't there isn't a good reason why movement of some sort, whether it be moving somebody from being inactive to walking regularly or getting somebody to start running, that, you know, there is no reason why everybody can't, can't do that to some extent. What I find, um, it, in, addition, in addition to the physical exercise, what I find afterwards, certainly with our running club, and it's probably the same with almost any running club anywhere in the world, is they're kind of reluctant to leave after they've finished their run they all collect in one place and then there's chatter going on or there's a cup of coffee afterwards or, or, you know, something. And the group is always extremely positive because they've all come back from their run. They're all a little bit buzzed up with the, the, the effects of their exercise and are usually extremely positive. You know, what usually one of the first things they ask is how was your run? Not like, let me tell you about the run I've just done. You know, it's usually val- validating uh, the other mm-hmm. people and you know as a as a social group 
they're a fantastic group just after a run. Probably if you met them all as individuals in their workplace, you'd go, who are these people? And you wouldn't <laughs> want to mix with them. But maybe certainly me, you wouldn't want to mix with me. Um, <laughs> but um, after the run, they're a fantastic social group. They're, they're feeling good and they're positive and they, they're often very validating towards other people. You know, I've even met a, a few people who are sort of semi-pro or pro runners after runs. And you think, well, they'll be aloof and they won't really want to engage because they operate in a different world. But usually they're not. They want to know how your run went and, you know, they share in the, the secret runners club credo, which is, you know, everything's wonderful after a run. And, and, and that can have a fantastic psychological benefit, I think. It's rare that I would come back after a run and not feel better than before a run. Yeah, definitely. And that, and that community is, is what keeps you motivated as well, isn't it? Because you you do form friendships and you do, like you say, meet people that you didn't think you would normally meet in your course of life and, and find have running in common and being accountable to other people like that. They're expecting to see you. If you're not there, they give you a shout, where are you? You know, how's things going? And I think that, yeah, creating community around running is one of the things that makes it so powerful. Just having somebody ask you, how did it go? Just like you say, it validates it and, and, it, and it makes you feel uh, that somebody's interested and, and that that in itself can be such a small question, but it can really boost somebody's self-esteem and, and confidence and keep them coming back, which is which is the key because it can be hard, can't it, running? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can be hard to motivate yourself to get there, but those extra bits and that good social health, it, it, yeah, really, really important. I think also like uh, what I find with the with the goal setting that you mentioned is um, is, you know, it's a kind of like a safe place to set goals. I mean, I guess this kind of depends on perspective, because for some people setting big goals is uh, is stressful. But in a way, like for me, I feel like running goals. I mean, usually your running partners, they'll be disappointed for you if you don't meet your expectation but they're only disappointed for you because they know you're disappointed they're not disappointed in you uh, because Mm -hmm. you didn't achieve that goal whereas you know when you set goals at work it's like you're always held accountable at the end of the year it's like well did you achieve those goals and so it's a bit more um it's a bit more stressful to like not achieve work goals, but these ones are, are sort of personal. And then if you, you know, if you don't meet them, like, uh, like Alan and I didn't, didn't get our sub three hours this year. Well, you just reuse the same goal for next year and try again. So it's, uh, it's kind of nice that way. And also we're pretty cool about saying, Oh, we have this target and we're going to go for this target and and then not achieve Mm -hmm. it and go, Oh, we didn't achieve it, but we achieved all the other things. Um, which was the whole training program and we got joy and benefit and learning. I I always say you either get success or you get learning and learning itself Mm -hmm. is success. So yeah, you don't get failure. You can't fail. <laughs> and, and I think that's important, actually, you're saying that about the perspective, because goals can be stressful. And that is something that I do sort of touch on in, in the book in a couple of places is that being careful and getting the right balance for yourself and, and not letting running become a stressor, because you can, particularly depending on your personality, you can get very caught up in it and, and start to, yeah, uh, be disappointed if you don't 
don't meet your goals, but actually put a lot of pressure on yourself and, and you, you don't rest when you should rest and you, you keep going despite being injured because you, you're so relentless in, in pushing towards those goals. So I think it is Im- important to you know always have that, that healthy perspective and take a step back every now and then and make sure that you're doing it because you want to do it rather than because you feel you have to do it. Good stuff. Let me uh, just change the subject a little bit. We've got a lot of cold weather here at the moment in Montreal. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> I've noticed in the club, there are a few people who seem to have difficulty getting their breathing under control in the cold weather. And, and I was fascinated by your discussion on diaphragm breathing mm-hmm. in, in, the, in, in the book. Maybe you could just explain to our listeners, what, what is this diaphragm breathing and how does it help you? Sure. Yeah. So um, the diaphragm, if people are unsure, is this kind of uh, platform of muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. And it works with a little bit of suction, if you like. When your diaphragm lowers, it pulls, it draws air into your lungs. And when your diaphragm rises again, it pushes air out of your lungs. And very often when we're breathing, we're not breathing using that diaphragm to its maximum potential. So it's like the pit. So it's like the piston um, pushing pushing your lungs. Yeah, the volume of your lungs out and then sucking it in. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And but also when we're breathing, we we're using our muscles between our ribs and 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 around around our chest to open up our lungs as well. And particularly when you're running, depending on your posture, you can often get quite tense. Your shoulders sort of tend to, to crunch in and you, you know, your, ear, your shoulders raise up to your ears. And because you're feeling um, out a little bit out of breath, often you tend to really breathe just with your chest rather than actually being able to expand your lungs to the full. And, you know, we want to get as much oxygen into our lungs as possible because then we're getting as much oxygen to our muscles. So we want to really make sure that we're getting the most most effective breath that we can and actually simply by taking a little check on what we're doing with our breathing and practicing to breathe with our diaphragm so that we can get our lungs to expand to their maximum can be something that's which is that we're out of practice of doing but it can make a little bit of difference rather than purely breathing in our chest actually breathing into our belly a little bit so in the book I sort of describe how to practice that you know lying flat on your back with your hand just underneath your rib cage and as you breathe in trying to push your belly out because then you know that you're using your diaphragm and not just your upper chest muscles to breathe takes a little bit of practice and some people get out of the practice, particularly pregnant women, when they've got a big bump there, a big baby bump, they do naturally, because of the way the baby is sort of compressing the, the, the chest, actually start breathing a lot more with their upper body. And it takes a bit of time to, to relearn diaphragmatic breathing. But it is something simple that we can all do. It's hard when you're running along and you're trying to keep your running posture good to breathe into your diaphragm. But with practice, it, it can actually be done. And it does make a bit of difference to to say how much oxygen you're getting in and keeping your breathing calm as well because obviously when you're in a nice rhythm that can be that can be very important and i guess in the cold weather here the chances of you being tense when you start because you're cold and you're sort of crunched up because of the cold just exacerbates the possibility that it's going to restrict your breathing yeah and some people do find actually rather than the the diaphragm not not functioning properly but that they're actually their airways sometimes narrow with cold air and you know a little bit in the same way that asthmatics do and particularly people with asthma can find that cold air really 
quite debilitating because they do, they do find that it constricts their airways a little bit different. It's, you know, it's constricting the, the actual tubes that the air is passing along and narrowing them down a little bit. Um, that's slightly different, obviously, to, to not breathing with your diaphragm, but that cold air can affect in, can affect runners in, in lots of different ways. Normally, once you're warmed up, it's fine. But obviously, if you have asthma, it can be it can be a big problem. And you sometimes need to increase your asthma treatment during the winter and the colder months to, to account for that if you are affected. I actually tried that diaphragm breathing exercise. Um, I guess it's a little bit similar also to what they try and have you do in, in like if you've ever done yoga or those kinds of things. Yeah. And it's actually pretty hard. I mean, my hands don't go up and down very much. And like, I'm really trying, I'm really trying to, you know, expand my expand my stomach so that, you know, they go up and down. And it just, I, I, I think I'm very much like a, like a, upper chest breather mm. like you it does take practice it does take practice definitely you know so even if you're sitting at your desk or sitting on the bus what you got if you watch a baby especially like a newborn baby and you watch them breathe you'll see their tummy mm-hmm. up and down and up and down and, and that's what we sort of lose over time I think partly from maybe is being seated a lot as well when things are more constricted you know you have to have a good posture to be able to do it properly she says sitting up washes <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to sit up straighter. Maybe it'll help. Um, The other thing that I notice a lot when I run is um, my nose runs, especially in the winter. I I feel like as the weather gets colder, I get, you know, instantaneous runny nose when I go outside and the wind blows. Um, Why does this happen? And is there any way to prevent it or help it not happen as much or... Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a really common problem. And, you know, people have lots of running friends who always say, oh, I need a tissue or they've just got a pair of gloves and they're just wiping their nose. Um, and it is more common in the cold air, can be common sort of linked into hay fever type things as well. And this is really because of the the lining. Well, it's a kind of a few things, really. There's the the airways. Have you've heard of the word rhinitis? Itis, Mm -hmm. if you stick it on the end of anything in medicine, it means sort of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And um, rhinitis sort of does account for all types of of runny nose, but there are lots of things can trigger it. And and cold air is is one of those. Um, And what what happens is that the, the nasal passages tend to sort of narrow, but they also get a little bit annoyed that cold air irritates them. It irritates the lining of them. I mean, the, the, our noses have lots of mucus in them naturally. And, you know, that's to stop dust and pollution and things and germs and things going into our nose. But when we're breathing rapidly, when, when we're running, we often find that because of the cold air irritating it, you just get an overproduction of the mucus. Those mucus cells that are lining the airways, they get sensitive and they just start producing more mucus, which when they're producing it quickly, it often tends to be much more liquidy than it is normally. So it's a tricky one to solve. Some mm. people don't have it at all. Some people have it really, really badly. And the, the easiest way is actually just to cover your nose up a little bit when you're running. So, you know, those buffs or well, we've got face masks at the moment, haven't we? You know, mm-hmm. they literally just warms the air a little bit before it goes into your nose. And that in itself can actually re- reduce, reduce the sort of chances of it happening. Um, the other thing you can you can look at if you are really badly affected is actually looking if there are any medications that you could use, particularly if it's linked to things like hay fever, then you might find things like antihistamine sprays or even antihistamine tablets can be helpful as well. Um, but, you know, if it is just one of those things, sometimes it's just one of those annoying things that runners just kind of have to cope with and we just have to get we have to get a tissue. But actually, 
you know, that nasal mucus is there for a purpose. We shouldn't get too cross with it when it's overproducing. It's just <laughs> trying to trying to help us stay to help us stay healthy. Yeah. And I guess my, my nose runs more in the winter. And I mean, like mm-hmm. the only, the only way to solve that would be just to not run in the winter, which is not really a yeah. solution. Right, yeah. Alan? <laughs> you just take your headband, you wrap it around your wrist and you use it as a nose wipe. That's it. That's <laughs> it. There's always ways. Yeah. Best not to send out a snot rocket as you see some, some runners doing. I'm not taking on those. <laughs> well, not right now with COVID, I guess. It's Absolutely. Socially your secretion, unacceptable. Your secretions to yourself. <laughs> I tend to do both. So apologies to my running buddies. <laughs> Just love they're not behind you. It's fine. <laughs> Um, one one subject that, that that comes up that's near and dear to my heart is alcohol, in particularly beer. Mm. Um, we were actually out last night. Um, the club had a run. Shout out to Phoenix Runners Montreal. Not only did we have a run, which is wonderful in itself, but we had a run which finished at a microbrewery that we associate ourselves with. And we went to trivia night there. Thanks, Troy, for the trivia night at, at uh, La Brosse Microbrewery. Um, I see I mentioned, I always mention La Brosse Microbrewery because I figure if I do it often enough, they'll give me some free beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, everybody had beer after afterwards. Everybody except I, Liz. Everybody yeah. except Liz. Liz has, what, ginger ale or something? I had ginger ale. Oh, <laughs> I did sad, have sad pizza, person. though. No, no, no. I had the, I had the better beverage. I guess, I guess we all know that, that beer is um, kind of no good for you uh, in, in, the, in the ultimate scheme of things. You, you get some, some effects, but not many runners are going to give up beer, I don't think. So all of that is just an intro uh, to ask you, tell us about alcohol consumption. What should we do? What should we not do? Particularly around key races or hard training. Yeah, I found this quite a challenging question to answer in the book because I really didn't want to sound preachy. And, you know, I, I, I love having a drink as well. And, and that, like you say, that social side after a run and going to the pub or I like to have a, having a glass of wine with my friends. So I, I didn't in, in any way want this to be, you know, didactic. You need to do this. Um, and, you know, it's not my it's not my position to tell to tell people what to do. But when I was looking at it, it was actually really hard to find some any positives <laughs> when it comes to alcohol and running other than if the social side and also if a, a small glass or something the night before an important race helps you to relax and makes you sleep a little bit better, then potentially you might get performance gains from that. But other than that, it was really hard to find anything that that was that was positive. And, and I think if people are looking for, you know, marginal gains in, in performance and things, then they really do need to, to look at, at their alcohol consumption and see if changing that makes makes a difference you know when it comes to those really marginal gains in terms of getting your speeds and your times and things then you're looking for all sorts of things that that you can that you can do and it's difficult really to say that alcohol will help you (laughs) to get those you know so many ways it can affect you can affect your sleep you never sleep with as good sleep quality you might sleep for the same length of time but you never sleep with such good quality after you've been drinking and sleep is when your body repairs itself it's it's you know restorative and and that that's really really important if you're following a training plan and you want the best out out of your performance you know we know that it 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 can actually rather than just affecting the sleep it can affect your recovery in in wider ways as well you know your body is trying to restore itself repair everything and 
the alcohol is not going to help with that process. And, and more than that, it, you know, it doesn't, it's rare, unless you have a little bit with orange juice, it's very rarely going to contain any vitamins or minerals that will help with, with those repair processes. It's kind of empty calories, if you like. There's lots of other things that you could be you could be drinking or consuming that would be more beneficial, maybe not as, as enjoyable. But after, after that, I think it really depends on how much you're having and and how you're using alcohol. If you're, I'm not sure in, in the States what the guidelines are, but but here the, the guidelines are that you, sh- you shouldn't binge drink. You know, you should spread out your, um, your alcohol intake. And if you're having excess alcohol, it's definitely going to have a negative effect. If you're having a moderate amount of alcohol, then it might have a negative effect. So, and a small amount is, is unlikely to make a difference. So really it's, it's how you drink and what and why you're drinking. And the odd drink with friends isn't going to make a big, big difference. But if you're drinking excessively, that can even impair things like your immune system, you know, and if you're wanting to stay well and you're wanting to be fit and healthy on your race day, then you want to do everything you can to try and improve your immune system and then if you're drinking and then running soon after you've been drinking or maybe even the next day then you really need to think about the immediate effects it's having on your body rather than just the long-term effects so actually making you dehydrated affecting your blood sugar can lower your blood sugar and and make you less able to to perform if your if your blood sugar is a little bit low so I think you know it's all about being safe but it's all about moderation and being sensible but if you are really looking for those marginal gains then you probably do need to think "Mm, is my relationship with alcohol affecting affecting my performance i certainly don't drink liz doesn't drink at all she would just do the chapter uh, alcohol don't drink it end of chapter (laughs) full stop (laughs) i certainly don't don't drink very much and i think uh, all the runners who, who who like beer tend not to drink excessively and and we all tend to have a, a sort of a credo of okay, well the marathon's coming up, the events coming up or whatever. Uh need to have no drinks for a period of time. And then we argue about what the period of time is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're if you're a light drinker, let's say, and and you're looking to abstain from alcohol leading up to a marathon, how for how long should you abstain? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the alcohol doesn't stay in your system that long. You know, each unit takes about an hour to get broken down by the body. Oh, so you can have a beer at breakfast time before the event. Yeah, if you, yeah. If you, <laughs> but I suppose the effect is if it's, a, if it's affecting your training, then ultimately that's going to affect your outcome on race day. So, you know, when he, I know when you taper, you know, you're, you're cutting back on your, on your training. So maybe although the, the, the kind of trend is that, you know, three, four weeks or whatever, before you cut down or the last two weeks, you don't have any at all. I suppose that can be boosting your immune system, but in, in how that's actually going to benefit your training gains, you might be actually better at looking at reducing sort of earlier on in your, in, in your training plan. So difficult question to, to answer that yeah. one um, and different for every person because obviously every, everybody metabolizes alcohol a little bit differently as well. And some people are more affected by it than others. The chief, I mean, the chief medical officer's guidelines here in the UK are that you should have no more than sort of 14 units a week for men and women, you know, and that's, that's about six, I think that's about six pints of beer. So it's still quite a lot for, you know, per, per week. Um, so, I mean, I think you can stick within those guidelines and still feel like you're not, 
affecting your health negatively, but you could be getting more benefit from your running if you cut if you cut back more. But as I say, I don't want to sound preachy because I think you know everybody finds what works for them, don't they? And and it's a very personal thing. Yeah, I guess just just anecdotally, what works for me is I, I always find it a sleep effect for mm-hmm. any amount of alcohol. So you know, I had yep. like one unit of alcohol, I had two two small beers last night, and this morning I feel like not as well rested as as normal so i go okay if i'm doing a marathon the sleep that's vital is the one two and three days before the marathon because <laughs> yes. it's not the night before so i need to have at least three days and just to be safe five days so i mm. usually go five days no alcohol whatsoever before mm. an event um, but that's just my personal approach yeah no, no scientific uh, reference articles available yeah, and I have a friend who who did her first marathon, full on training plan, um, and had no alcohol for the whole time during the plan because she just wanted to see what was the best that she could do on the day, and that she, yeah, she 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 did that. I guess it, you know, for her maybe it wasn't such a big deal to to cut it out, but yeah, I think we're all different. I, I I was I was better the first marathon that I ever did. I think I took it pretty seriously and and really cut down, and on subsequent marathons probably less so. To, to, to the point where I would have a glass of wine the night before just to relax me. And, and uh, what I do find now, though, is being nearly 50, is that if I have more than two units of alcohol, I'll wake up with a hot sweat in the night because of menopausal symptoms. So, again, like you say, I know that's going to make me not feel great the next day. And, um, yeah, so I, I think you can you can look at it in all different different angles. But, yeah, it was hard to find any many positives. <laughs> oh, well, I guess... Uh... I guess that's um, that just means that I'm in a good place, not liking alcohol. Smug now. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yep, I feel like I'm helping my performance every day that I don't drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, since we're on the subject of performance, uh, there was a a section about um, about giving blood, and I. I remember when I was uh, when I was 18, I gave blood for the first time. I, I. don't know why it was such a uh, such an event for me, but I just I thought that you know I wanted to do my part, and uh, there were always these ad campaigns about how uh, you know um, blood donations are needed, and uh, then after that, I I think I only maybe gave blood one other time because oftentimes I would show up for the blood donation, and uh, they would always do like a little skin prick to check your, I guess your iron stores, or I'm not really sure exactly what they Mm -hmm. check. Um, And I was never high enough to be able to give blood. Uh, So eventually I sort of gave up on that. And recently because of the pandemic and everything that's been going on, uh, we've been hearing those, um, those ads again about how important blood donation is because blood donations have been down because of the pandemic, but the demand is up. So, you know, I know also that getting a pint of blood removed is going to affect my performance. So how, how do you recommend that I, you know, go mm. about um, giving blood, or if I give blood, is there a better time of year to do it than mm. than other times of the year? This is a perfect example of a question that you think a doctor would know the answer to, but I didn't. You know, I, um, I do now, obviously, but as as a doctor who wasn't a runner, I, I 
somebody would come and, and ask me this and I wouldn't I wouldn't have had a clue and this is a really common question for people for runners to ask because like you say they want to do the right thing they want to give their blood but they don't want to give up it's the red blood cells really that are the important thing here when they're doing mm. your skin prick one of the things they're looking at is what your red blood cell level is because if you are already anemic then they don't want to take blood away from you you've got to have your red blood cells at sort of a certain level before you give blood really what you what you don't want to do is to give blood right before an important an important race because when you give blood it can take about six between sort of six and 12 weeks so even as long as two or three months for your body to be absolutely back to normal it's making red blood cells all the time but it is going to take a few weeks for your body to sort of make that up and get back get back to normal levels so really avoiding giving blood yeah six to 12 weeks before an event but actually that time when you've done the event that's a really good time to then you know you're having a bit of a breather between between events between training for something else then that is kind of the best time to give because when you give the blood although it takes about six 12 weeks for you to be completely back to normal you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily be aware of that but you certainly would be for a couple of weeks after you've given it and you shouldn't try and run really for at least 24 hours after you've donated because that you might feel good, but actually if you try to run too soon, you can feel quite lightheaded because you are effectively a little bit anemic. You know, you can feel really out of breath. You can get heart palpitations. You can feel dizzy. So really I would say leave it at least 24 hours and then see how you feel, you know, take it slowly, do a slow run, make sure you're well hydrated. Don't go out, uh, you know, on a, on a hill session or an interval session, just go, just take it sort of really easy. And then after a couple of weeks, you'll probably be absolutely you'll probably be feel absolutely fine but you still might as I say not want to donate within a couple of months of, of doing your your uh your main event so yeah a little bit of sort of jiggling around but you're you know you're healthy and you're fit and well and they need your blood so do do it but just think about the timing of it really and and do it after a big events rather than in the weeks before there's a lovely anecdote in the book of a friend of mine actually who who had donated and he thought that three days later, he's a doctor actually. <laughs> he thought later, three days later that he would be fine. So he set off on his half marathon and it turned out to be one of the worst runs he'd ever done. And he ended up walking about the last four or five miles, I think. So, you know, it, it can, it really can make a difference. I remember getting told back in ancient times when I was studying that I think red blood cells last for 30 days so is that right? You're nodding there, Juliet. So I'm really yes, I'm nodding. Yeah, yeah, I'm about that. Yeah, saying, yeah, not saying stupid stuff. Um, <laughs> so I always figure that you know all your red blood cells are turning over in 30 days. So after 30 days, you'd probably be okay. Um, you're saying it might be a little longer than that, but guys, plus or minus, that's my logic. Yeah, I mean, you'll probably be okay after a couple of weeks. You know, you'll probably be okay after a couple of weeks. But, you know, when you actually look at the red cell formation and getting back your levels back up, then then it can be it can be as long as six to 12 weeks to get to get back up. But you probably feel fine after two or three. But again, if you really want to get your best performance, then it's best to time not to time it within two or three months of of doing your marathon. So after you after your plan rather than yeah. at the start of it. Let's okay. move on to the chapter on gastro on gastrointestinal tract, your gut. I, I guess some um, gastro problems are something that everybody at some stage who's a runner gets to have the fun experience of having some kind of issue. 
<laughs> Although in between runs, I would say probably your gastrointestinal, my, mine, I don't know if it's everybody, but your gastrointestinal system is probably in better condition. Maybe it's because it's all the jiggling up and down when you're running. I don't know. But why does it happen that sooner or later we have gastro problems when we're running and what can we do about it? Yeah, again, lots of uh, variation between people. And I think this is really important in new runners because I certainly remember on my running journey setting out, you know, I would have stitch after stitch and then I would, I would need the toilet when I was out on the run and, and it just seemed to sort of send everything haywire. You know, those days when you're trying to think, is this actually good for me? <laughs> um, how can it be good if you know that stitch pain is agony, isn't it? And I think from what, you, you know, what you're saying, often it's training often your body just starts to get more used to what you're asking it to do the bowel gets used to jiggling up and down and it settles into that and also you get better at knowing what to eat and when to eat and how to fuel yourself and how long you need to wait after you've eaten before you run and that is such an individual thing you know in days gone by I, I would have to wait like three hours after I'd eaten before I went for a run and now I can have something like a banana or a bowl of porridge and be out the door within half an hour so you know I think I think it does take a little bit of gut training and I also think that everybody is very individual as to how sensitive their their gut is I think I'm pretty fairly lucky with a bit of a cast iron system whereas I have friends who have a bit of irritable bowel syndrome who find a, a real conundrum knowing how long to eat and, and getting the right foods, not on just that day, but on the day before as well, because obviously still digesting that. And when you're actually running, you know, the blood is the, the priority for the blood is to go to your muscles to get you functioning. So uh, the blood supply to the actual gut itself can reduce a little bit and the gut doesn't like that. And that's when it can get irritated and it can cause problems and food tends to just pass much more quickly through it, which is why runners often get loose stalls or we call you know, runners trots and that sudden urge to go and then have a kind of an explosive runny motion. Sorry, get a bit graphic. Um, and it can catch you by surprise. Sometimes you think you've you've nailed it, you've got it all right, and and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, there you just have a, a a really bad run where where things hurt and your belly's not right, and you have to stop off and find a toilet and things. So, I think it is a continuing sort of journey of learning and understanding your own body and trial trial and error really is is the biggest thing. But generally keeping well and fit and healthy and exercising regularly will help your bowels. You know, they'll help avoid things like constipation if you're drinking enough fluids anyway, and, and keep you healthy. And we know that physical activity, particularly vigorous things like running can reduce your risk of developing bowel cancer in the future significantly, you know, up to almost as much as 50% in some of the studies. So however much trouble it's giving us, it's still worth keeping going. That's quite amazing. I heard this about a month ago and I thought it was kind of an urban myth that, that running protected you from cancers. So I thought, no, that's not going to be right. Now, reading your book and looking at some of the, the, the other research, it's, it's quite amazing. There's some really good, strong, large evidence bases that yeah show the all physical activity. And often the more you do and the more intense, often the results are better, but for all types of cancers. So breast cancer for women, um, bowel cancers, particularly the physical activity seems to be really important. In fact, 
at the point you're diagnosed with bowel cancer, if you are already an active person, then your survival rate is better than somebody who's inactive at the time that they're diagnosed. And also in reducing the risk of things coming back and recurrence as well, like breast cancer and bowel cancer. So it's a really, it, it's really powerful stuff. And if you, you know, if you've got a strong family history of things, you can't change your genetics, but there are things that you can change like your lifestyle and, and keeping, keeping physically active. So we often don't think about this when we're running. You just like, we just like the running and going and having, <laughs> seeing our friends and having a beer afterwards and blah, blah, blah. But actually we are, I think, and this is one of the things I really wanted to sort of empower people. We're, we're making a choice for our future and we are doing things that will improve our health, reduce our risk of being dependent on others to look after us in, in later life and, and really making some great life choices by, by keeping active. That's a great message. I love that. And um, along the same lines, because, you know, the non-runners, the first thing they're going to say is like, yes, so you're not going to have cancer and you won't have heart disease, but mm. your knees are going to be completely demolished. <laughs> so what do you say to those people? <laughs> I knew that would be coming. That's always, that's always a question. And, and it's, you know, it, it's important, isn't it? And that is the biggest non-runners worry about running. And actually for some runners, it is still, uh, it is still a worry, but I think the overriding message that I could say is if you're inactive, you will have more problems with your knees than if you're active, even if you're a runner. And there's, there's so much evidence now that not only that that running doesn't harm your knees, but that running can be beneficial for your knees. There are a few caveats to this. You know, if you are somebody who has a very poor running gait so that you are running with really poor biomechanics and your knees aren't functioning in quite the way that they were designed to. So you've got some strange angles and things like that going on, then potentially, yes, you could, you could cause more damage to your knees. Or if you're somebody who has another um, health problem that can affect the joints then again you've got to be a little bit you've got to be a little bit careful if you are very overweight then you're going to be putting extra stress on your joints so there are there are a few sort of caveats to it but generally the evidence is that that running doesn't cause osteo osteoarthritis and I, and I think a lot of the thing we're talking about here is osteoarthritis it's that sort of what we used to call wear and tear arthritis in the knees and there's, there's very good evidence now that actually it's, it doesn't cause it. If you're going to, it's much more to do with your genetics, much more to do with your family history than how much you run. If you run excessively year after year, miles and miles and miles, and you, you don't allow your joints time to recover and to repair and to heal themselves, then yes, you can. There's always too much of a good thing. But for most recreational runners, they can be really confident that it's not going to give them arthritis. And actually, if they develop a little bit of arthritis anyway, that it can help to maintain good knee health, can help to maintain the flexibility and the mobility and even reduce pain in people who have already got osteoarthritis and they say there's growing there's growing studies and evidence for it to, to be able to say these things quite confidently now whereas before it was a bit mm, yeah we don't think so uh you know they they all seem okay but yeah de definitely there's 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 good evidence that it can be beneficial and not harmful to knees so we mustn't get too worried that's good we just we've dismissed the, the, the issue. So we, we just need everybody to listen to this podcast now. And then we don't have to <laughs> talk to our family about how our knees are every time we meet them at Christmas and 
We can just reference the podcast every time. Yeah. I mean, you want to take care of them. You know, you need to look after them. You need to make sure you've got a good running gait. You need to make sure you replace your trainers that maybe you do some off-road as well as just pavement running so that you've got some softer impact and make sure that you do strength and conditioning so you strengthen the muscles around your knees because by doing that, you'll take some of the impact off the, 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 the cartilage and the deeper structures of the knee if the muscles are strong. So, you know, it's important for, for people to listen to that bit of the podcast as well we've got to look after our knees and and respect them and give them recovery time and and do all those extra things to look after them as well for us for them to serve us well yeah i guess to balance up the 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 discussion um runners get injured a lot there's a high frequency of of percentage runners that get injured during any one year i think it's you know quite it's quite high it's sort of up to 50 percent or something it is yeah some of the studies so what's going wrong and what can we do about that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And you're right. I, I read some of the studies that were saying up to up to 50% of runners have some kind of injury during the year. I think some of it is genetic. Some of us are more prone to injury than others. So, and we can't change our, our genetics, but some of it is to do with our running technique or our running style or the way we're training. It's easy to get carried away and do too much and, and maybe not always having that respect for our body. And, and also sometimes runners just run. And I think you're missing a trick there. If you do just run and you don't do anything else, because you will be using the same muscles in the same uh, range of movement sort of repeatedly over and over. And you can really make significant difference to your running by thinking of your body a little bit more holistically and looking at what other things you can do to work other muscles and to, to keep your, body strong and and conditioned so i'm a big i'm a big fan of of adding in some strength work and and body conditioning and i know a lot of the time we just don't do it because we just would rather go running but i think if you are someone who does get repeatedly injured then it is definitely worth looking at that and seeing could it be that if you did some pilates and you strengthened your core and then a strong core pulled everything else into line that that you know things have a a knock-on effect so i am a big big fan in terms of injury prevention especially as we get older as well you know i think we do our bodies do need a little bit more care and they do need a little bit more time sometimes for recovery so sometimes we have to accept that maybe we need an extra rest day a week maybe we don't but but things do change and I think we do need to yeah look respect our body and and look after it and there is generally reasons if people are getting injured maybe they're going back too soon before their injury is properly healed or they didn't get that injury diagnosed and they thought it's one thing and it actually turns out that it's another. So I think being well-informed and, and, and getting help with, with niggles and making sure injuries are really well-treated, but then also digging a bit deeper. Are there imbalances in your gait? Are there ex- simple exercises you could do to strengthen those muscles to re- repair imbalances and, and eating well? So we've got the right building blocks for our body to re- repair and, and then looking at our recovery as well. Sorry, that was quite a long answer to... Oh no, that's okay. That was, uh, it was very good. It was very complete. Um, and so I, I just have one question and it's more for my, my partner. Um, he often gets kind of like shin, well, I'm going to call them shin splints. Cause that's really mm-hmm. what the symptoms seal, seem like. Um, so what, why do they happen and how do you get rid of those? Cause they seem to yeah. just kind of come and go and, you know, they, they're always yeah. sort of there in the background, just waiting to come back. Yeah. So pain in the shins is quite common in runners, common in beginner runners, but also common in runners who are trying to increase their 
distance, their frequency, their sort of intensity of running. And and to be honest, nobody really understands shin splints, don't actually really know what they are. So this is different from stress fractures. Shin splints, there's no break in the bone. I think it's important to be clear about that because people often sort of confuse the two things. And really, we, we think that there's some kind of process going on because of stress in that area that causes some trauma to either the surface of the bone, um, the, the periosteum, which sort of coats the bone or the tissues around the bone. And because when they've done studies and they've put sort of people through MRI scanners and things, they haven't really seen massive changes in, in that would account for the, for the pain and the, and the tenderness. It's often very sort of tender. So they do seem to be related to overuse, potentially to inflammation in that area. So I think, and it's difficult to actually pin down exactly what they are, but because we know that people are more likely to get them if they overtrain or people are more likely to get them if they, if they do make a big dramatic increase in, in the load and that they're putting on their legs. So kind of then sort of dialing it backwards from then you can sort of look at the things that you, that would put you personally at risk from getting them. Treating them is tricky and often involves actually trying to reduce any inflammation that might be there. So ice packs after you've run is, is a really, really good, uh, simple thing that we, that we can all do. But I think also allowing enough time for recovery, because I think that's one of those situations where we perhaps don't give it enough because we're desperate to sort of get back out there. And you really need to wait until there's no pain, there's no tenderness. You can jump up and down on the spot and you're not feeling pain. You can walk freely without any discomfort before you then start trying to get back into it, which sometimes, you know, can take quite a few weeks. And that in itself can be can be quite frustrating. But if you go back too soon, then you, you often just end up in the same place again. So I hate telling runners to rest, but I think that is one, one of those situations where cross-training can be really helpful. If what you're doing isn't hurting your shins, then it's probably fine to carry on. So by all means, you know, don't do nothing, but but look at other ways you can you can cross-train. And then again, looking at is there anything underlying this? You know, yes, looking at your training plan and making that sensible, but actually could it be worth going to see a, a physiotherapist or somebody who can actually look at the way your feet are landing, the muscles that you're using, your gait, and seeing if there's anything else there that could be done to to improve to improve things, as well as you know looking at your good shoes and that they may come up with things like strengthening your calf muscles because that is often one thing that people with shin splints have weaker calf muscles. So, but for those kind of things, you probably do need someone who an ex, an expert to actually have a look and see is there anything else that's going on that might be making them come back time after time after time. With respect to your partner, it's probably too much bike riding. He needs, he needs yeah. to run a little bit more. Needs to do more running. Bike ride a bit less. Across to the dark side. Yeah. Um, there, there's a chapter. This this is not my this is not my question really, but uh, I should throw this to Liz. But there's a chapter on the reproductive system, which is pretty cool. But I think the one take home message I got from it is, I'm really glad that I'm a guy because. <laughs> Other than, other than, you know, a bit of chafing in some interesting spots that you need to avoid, that kind of almost covers it. And girls <laughs> seem to have, ladies seem to have all the problems in terms of challenges with periods and uh, possible pregnancy. While so there's, there's, 
there's a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe we can start with the pregnancy because, you know, I feel like running through pregnancy is one of those things that seems to be so polarized. You know, you'll have, um, I had a teammate who's gynecologist when she got pregnant. So she was training at a, you know, at a pretty high level, but told, told her to stop running when she got pregnant, that it's not good for the baby. Um, she didn't stop running. She just stopped telling her doctor about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but she was very sensible, you know, she didn't push when she didn't feel like it and, you know, that kind of thing. So she was very good about it. But then I had another teammate and her doctor said it was okay. As long as she, you know, listened to her body and all that. And Mm -hmm. even in the general population, you know, you'll have sort of two reactions to seeing a pregnant woman run. And so you'll either have the reaction where, people will be like, oh, wow, she's running while she's pregnant, like such an inspiration, or you'll have the complete opposite where they're like, oh, she's running while pregnant. That's so irresponsible. So which Mm -hmm. one is it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Well, I think starting with it again, with sort of the disclaimer bit, if you like, for the for the majority of women with uncomplicated pregnancies, running in pregnancy and, and physical activity in pregnancy is is not harmful. That's that's the override. Of course, there are always going to be women who have issues with their pregnancy where running will be unsafe for them. And so I think it's always good if you're unsure to speak to your your doctor or your obstetrician or your midwife to, to make sure that things are OK for you, because there are a few situations where where it wouldn't be recommended. But for the majority of women with normal pregnancies, uncomplicated pregnancies, the benefits are, are great. And. We, there is so many myths around this, which are slowly, I think, being dispelled. There's a lot of education and there's certainly a lot of work going on in the UK to make it much more acceptable. And I think the key here really is, or two, is what you were doing before you were pregnant. So if you were already running and, 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 and training and you were experienced, then there isn't really any reason for you to change. If you are inactive then it's still beneficial for you to start being active, but you might not want to start with running. You might want to start with walking and, and gradually building up. But definitely being active in your pregnancy is beneficial to the mom. It's beneficial to the baby. It reduces lots of complications as well as all those annoying pregnancy niggles like backache and um, swollen feet and things, which can be improved by, by exercise. So if you are running and it's uncomplicated and there's no reason for you not to, to be um, exercising with high intensity, then, then, then running's great, you know, and it's really much more about what you feel comfortable with. There comes a time in pregnancy where women, sometimes they start off with the intention, they're going to run right, right the way through, but when the bump gets a bit big, they feel uncomfortable. It pulls, um, they, it's not, they feel self-conscious. It's that actually is just genuinely uncomfortable and they, or they lose, they become a bit clumsy sometimes later in pregnancy and they don't necessarily feel safe, especially on tricky road trails or off road. So they often listen to their body and, and choose a, 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 you know, an intensity or a route, which, which feels good for them. And I think that's the most important thing really is for women to, to not worry if they can't do what they did before. Yeah. So if you are somebody who is already active and running plenty, there's no reason really for you to, for you to change. The only thing I would say is that the focus really changes from increasing your fitness to maintaining your fitness. 
So you don't want to be necessarily pushing your heart rate really super high, but exercising and keeping it at a more constant level is going to be great. So a really good rule of thumb is whether you can chat. If you can chat when you're running, you can you can be confident that you're at a level that your body can sustain and can maintain. So rather than looking at those harder sessions, rather than trying to increase your fitness, maintaining your fitness is is the best bet, really. So you can take your time, you know, and you can you can chat with the friends etc and keep still very more social running but you probably don't want to be training for a particular event and really trying to push your fitness so obviously people who are elite athletes and, and have very personal coaches um, who are watching their every move and recording etc may give different advice but I'm in this book I'm kind of looking at the the average sort of recreation recreational runner there are things you can do to make yourself a little bit more comfortable. You know, there are kind of running bands and belt things that you can put around to try and stop your bump jiggling around. But ultimately women, women are sensible. They want to do what's best for them. They want to do what's best for their baby. And they tend to know, they tend to slow down when they need to. They tend to reduce their, the length of their sessions. They tend to take things a bit more easy. And there comes a point for some women that when they just think, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable now and, and they stop running. So, uh, you know, generally women know, know what to do if they're, if they're tuning and listening to their body, but I would say maintain rather than try and increase and, and see how you see how you go. Don't have any expectations it can be really damaging to set expectations for yourself and then not meet them because you feel like a failure. But when it comes to looking after your unborn child women generally are spot on and they know they know what feels right keeping hydrated taking it easy yeah let's change the narrative <laughs> good that's that's great let's hope that that um that starts to be the new the new norm is that people just are kind of you know they see a woman that's pregnant running and uh it's not anything to criticize yeah it, it, in the uk we have some uh guide national guidelines for exercise in pregnancy and they are exactly the same as the guidelines for non-pregnant people you know they still oh, wow. say 100 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity every week strength exercises a couple of times a week reduce your sitting time they just say listen to your body and take care not to bump your bump um and that that i think is has given healthcare professionals anyway the confidence to be encouraging women to be active um and if there are complications then obviously your advice might be a little bit different so um, I guess the next uh, the next logical topic would be um, would be after having the baby because this is when this normally happens. But if you run with other women, uh, oftentimes you'll hear like um, hear the mention about you know leaking urine while they run or when mm -hmm. they laugh or those kinds of things. And oftentimes they attribute it to you know oh it's been like that since I had my kids or since I had my you know my first child or my second child or my third child and um and we kind of tend to take this as sort of just like well it's part of being a woman this is the way it has to be but you mentioned in your book that although it's common it's not normal so what can we do about this yeah absolutely common but not normal is 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 the key and as many as one in three or four women experience urinary incontinence. And some of it, as you say, is related to childbirth. But for some women, it's not. Uh, particularly as women get older, it becomes more common. And, and that is in women who have had children or not had children. And you even you even do get it in, in youngsters as well. So the fact that it's common but not normal is really my way of saying that you shouldn't have to suffer. 
and there is plenty that can be done to improve things. And it's a big, big barrier for women and running. It's, it stops lots of women from trying running because they know it's a sort of a high impact exercise, but it also puts off many people who have been long-term runners and suddenly find that they leak in urine when they're running downhill, particularly or when they're sprinting, particularly that it puts them off and it, and it stops them uh, wanting to do it in the first place. So I think this is really, really, really important. And again, it's one of those taboo topics, you know, I, there's so many of them that I cover in, in this book and in my first book, you know, all the things that nobody else wants to talk about. Um, and I think that women should get help. They, yes, you can start yourself by doing pelvic floor exercises and trying to improve the strength of those pelvic floor muscles that support your bladder and your bowel, because some women have fecal incontinence as well, but actually doing those, if you're doing those regularly and doing them um, over a course of about 12 weeks or so, and it's not made any difference and your symptoms haven't gone away, then you should get an expert to see you. And the right expert would be a woman's health physiotherapist, because this is what they're trained in to look at the issue, to look at, again, sometimes the position of your body, the way you're posture is when you run how your feet hit the floor the angle of your hip all those things that can happen in in running can be relevant are your glutes weak that's a big one you know weak glutes often run, plenty of runners have have weak glutes but we know that weak glutes can actually make you more likely to have urinary incontinence as well so it's a complex thing and getting an expert to see you to help you supervise you with the pelvic floor exercises and then to give you further treatment after that if they haven't helped is is really crucial and it's something, yeah, we need to shout shout loudly about because many women are wearing black leggings and rushing off to the toilet, you know, in the middle of races and things like this. So it's a big, big issue. Mm. And I guess those glutes are very important. It seems like the glutes are are one of the things that come up a lot in the book. Runners have hopeless glutes. Basically. <laughs> like I'm obsessed with bottoms. Yeah, I do mention them a lot. I do mention them a lot in this book. <laughs> But in general, I think I think we hear about them a lot because, you know, I've had um, I've had uh, some I've had plantar fasciitis and I've had some Achilles issues in, in mm -hmm, recent years. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and that, too, you know, I watch all these YouTube videos and they're always like, well, it could stem from an unstable mm -hmm, pelvic mm -hmm. area. And so, you know, it could be that your glutes are 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 weak or or not firing at the right time or not stabilizing the right bones so it, it seems like they they come up they come up a lot they do i mean i think that they're the biggest muscle in the body you know so we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't use them because there's so much power in them so and because of our sedentary lifestyles because we do so much sitting we're we're, we're all developing sort of weaker glutes and yeah why not use them if we can if we can and not only will it give us power, but that will also help, like you say, to correct lots of postural things, which then can have a knock on to our, our technique and, and, our, and our running health. So, yeah, definitely fire up those glutes. And I guess the bottom line is, you know, we need to engage with doing the exercises that are part of the solution. The problem with runners, I think, is we like to run. We don't want to mm. do all that other stuff. No. I just want to put my shoes on, go out the door and start running. And when I finish running, stop. And uh, increasingly, I think, um, you know, we're getting the message that, you know, you need to do other things and don't accept that, you know, when I can't run because I have an issue that I need to stop running. No, you need mm -hmm. to address the issue and you address the issue through non-running means, often strengthening mm -hmm. exercises or 
you know, in the case of leaking urine, maybe it's pelvic floor or strengthening exercise, Pilates mm-hmm. or something. Um, you know, in the case of my knee problems this year, it's sort of glute strengthening exercises and uh, a bit of um, resistance work. And by engaging with those other things, sometimes it could be diet. By engaging with those other things, you can get back into your running and get all the benefits off your running instead of saying, well, you know, I just want to run. Now I can't, so I'm going to stop. Then you're not going to get the benefits of all the protection that, that running is going to give you in your older years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I want to be one of those 80-year-old women, you know, at the London Marathon. And I know in order to do that, what I do now is important. So I'm increasingly, maybe I'm just getting older and wiser, but I'm increasingly seeing that small things that you do daily now make a difference for your future. Even if you don't really want to do them, you'll be saving your t- yourself time and energy and, and enabling you to be a healthy runner for many years to come. If you can just devote a little bit of time and effort to doing some of those things that you don't necessarily want to do. So in your book, you actually mentioned that, uh, weight doesn't indicate health status. So um, I guess the first question is, what what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that what I'm trying to say is that you shouldn't judge people. You can't look at somebody and know how healthy they are by the way that they look. Because what you see from the outside doesn't always reflect what's going on inside. And one of the big markers of future ill health or high disease risk comes from having lots of visceral fat and visceral fat is the harmful fat that sits around your internal organs so around your heart around your liver and actually in your skeletal muscles a little bit as well and that that internal fat causes inflammation in the body and that increases your risk of developing diseases like cancer, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, etc. But you can't necessarily tell how much of that harmful fat somebody's got by looking at them. If somebody has a very large waist, then it's likely that they will have an increased amount of that visceral fat. But you can also be somebody who looks quite slim who doesn't look healthy on the inside and does have quite a lot of visceral fat. So really what I'm trying to say is that we, that you can't assume that somebody who is slim doesn't need to look after themselves by exercising because exercise is really good at reducing visceral fat. It's really responsive to exercise. So if you exercise and you reduce the amount of visceral fat you've got, you reduce the inflammation in your body, which will reduce your risk of, of, of various diseases. Now you could, so you could be somebody who was, who was slim, didn't do much exercise, but had a lot of visceral fat and you could have a high risk of disease compared to somebody who is heavier and more overweight than you are, but has lower levels of visceral fat and exercises regularly. So I really sort of wanted to sort of just try to, to dispel some of the the myths there that you, 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 you can be fit and fat, if you like, that's the sort of phrase that, that, that people say, and that we just mustn't judge people and that physical activity and running is good for all of us. And we shouldn't just use running in terms of weight. Many people start running because they want to lose weight. That doesn't always work because running makes you very hungry. <laughs> um, and, and also, yeah, it just doesn't always work. And it can be very, very, make you feel very despondent. 
And in a way, we should almost separate entirely the benefits of running. Yes, it might help some people lose weight, but actually, regardless of that, it's still doing us good because it's helping to reduce that internal harmful visceral fat that will make us healthier. So some of the benefits of exercise are to do with weight loss, but many of them are completely independent of that. And, and I think we just need to sort of change how we 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 look at people and how how we yeah, we do tend to judge and, and we shouldn't. And I guess that goes along with uh, the first chapter where you're about mental health and that, you know, you know, your the scale might not be at the number that you want, but it you're still doing something positive for your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that those mental health benefits are there for everybody, aren't they? Regardless of size, shape, weight, fat levels, et cetera. You know, the, the, the positive psychological benefits are for absolutely all, all runners and non-runners. I think a note for anybody who, who's thinking of going out and wonders uh, how people regard them, you know, uh, how will people, what will people think of me if I'm out in my running gear shaped like this? Um, my attitude, and I think a lot of people that I know who run, this attitude is if you're out there and you're running and you're making an effort or you're doing walking and you're, you're in your running gear and you're out there doing it, you go power to you. Um, mm. and, and our reaction is generally, if I could speak for the whole running community, our reaction is you're a runner. So you're one of us. And what you look like is irrelevant because lots of runners are nerds and introverts anyways. So they're kind of less likely weirdos anyways. So why would they worry about what somebody else looks like? Uh, and I think, if there's anybody listening to the podcast who's thinking, oh, you know, I feel really self-conscious, just get out there and do it. Actually, everybody's rooting for you and everybody thinks that you're great for doing it. Yeah, I would second that. Yeah, definitely. The running community is is very welcoming and accepting. And like you say, most people aren't looking, if they look at you, they're not looking at you thinking, oh, she looks silly they're, or he looks silly. They're looking at you thinking, good for you. Go on. Yeah. And, and sometimes they don't say anything because they don't want to sound patronizing. Yeah. But that's that's what the majority of people are thinking. And once once people get over that and they realize that, then they think, why didn't I start earlier? But the problem is speaking to those that don't do it and trying to convince them that that's what other people are thinking. It, it's a, it is a real barrier. And I, and I have plenty of women you know, I can think of two immediately in my in my very close sort of running circles who only ran um, in the dark to start with. You know, they started their running journey oh. a very early morning or very late at night in the dark so that nobody could see them running because they were too self-conscious. And that, you know, I'm glad they did it. And now they're running in daylight and, and is great. Mm -hmm. But but mm -hmm. it's it's sad that that's that's how you feel when you when you begin, that it's something mm -hmm. something to shout, to be proud about and, and, and not hide. And yeah it's a lot of it's in our mind isn't it what we think people are thinking about us yeah just an aside sometimes when you see somebody looking at you when you're running it's because it's a runner that's injured and what they're thinking is like that's not fair how come she gets to run and I don't yeah <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, so um I guess a, a kind of a follow-up question would be uh would be this notion that you know once you get really fit and you start to have all these training goals you know you hear very often the power to weight ratio is you know for is is great for performance you have to like reduce your weight so that you can perform better what would you say to that um I I'm less and less looking at what the scales say and much more focusing on muscle 
you know, to have speed, to have power, you need muscle and muscle is going to weigh more than, than fat does. It's almost particularly as people age and, and um, by aging, I'm meaning after the age of about 30, our muscle mass is gradually reducing. It's just natural. That's what happens, particularly after people and women in particular around the menopause after the age of about 50, that speeds up a little bit. So I'm increasingly aware how important muscles are. And when you use a muscle, it releases myokines and myokines are anti-inflammatories and they zoom around in your circulation and, and reduce inflammation. And as I said, with the visceral fat, that's that inflammation in the body that increases our risk of disease. So actually, when we use a muscle and we get the myokines, it has an anti-inflammatory effect and then that reduces inflammation in the body. So really we want to gain muscle and we want to build muscle and maintain the muscle we've got. And if you're looking at building power and speed, then you, you, you need muscle. And so in a way the scales become irrelevant. And what's more important is how you're building muscle, but also that you're consuming enough calories to fuel your activity as well and fuel your exercise that you've got the right vitamins and minerals to do the repair jobs when you're, when you're resting. So you can rebuild the muscle and the bone, et cetera. But also it's very easy to slip into negative calorie deficit. And I I do mention in the book, a condition called reds. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. So relative energy deficiency in sport. sport. Yeah. And it used to be thought this was just a, a thing affecting, affecting women and giving them lack of periods and things but we now know it's much wider than that it's not just talking about eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia it's actually talking about anybody who isn't consuming the right foods or enough of the right foods to fuel the exercise that they're doing and if you're constantly in energy deficit then that will have a knock-on effect to your performance so not just your performance but your ability to think to concentrate your moods your digestive system uh, your bone health for women can affect their, their menstrual cycles. So it's a really broad, it's a really broad picture. So there's a fine line if you are trying to reduce your weight to improve your performance that, that you can that you can easily slip into energy deficit and 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 that again will have a negative effect on your performance. So it is, you know, if you're if you're looking along those lines and you're really looking at again at marginal gains and high level stuff, then I, I would really recommend speaking to a, an expert, you know, a, a dietitian to making sure that you are that you're doing it safely and and that you're not actually accidentally, unintentionally harming yourself. We've seen with Red S and particularly in high level training of um of females it's been very well publicized uh, recently mm-hmm. in, in in the u.s in particular uh, the yep. detrimental effect it has on you know people who are pushing themselves who feel they have to get to a low weight to get high performance and the sort of negative consequences it's had on bringing forward top 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 athletes from the female ranks because in the u.s they start very young highly competitive mm-hmm. and all the juniors who are the top juniors in the US end up not converting to be the top professionals. There's quite a fall away because um, basically training programs are wrong or have been wrong. Yeah. There's, and there's a lot of pressure on those, on those, some of I say girls, cause a lot of them are like, say still girls. And, and, and that's a time, you know, you, you reach your maximum bone mass and bone health is one of the big problems that some of these women are having. You reach your, you reach 90% of your bone mass, by the time you're 19 
Um, and then you get to 100% by the time you're 30. So if in those during those times, you've had any issues that have affected how strong your bones are, then you're never going to reach a good peak bone mass. And, and then after 30, it starts to reduce. So some of these women, you know, what happens is that they're, they're because of the energy deficiency, their body stops having menstrual cycles and then that affects their hormone balance which affects their estrogen levels which affects their bone health so they end up with with osteoporosis which is very thin bones or osteopenia which when they're a little bit thin but not as thin as osteoporosis and and it's very hard to make that up so a lot of these a lot of these things can be long-term issues and, and problems so it, it's sad um i mean it's great that it's it is the awareness is increasing and so a normal period is like a marker of good health, but women who are using the contraceptive pill where they're having either none or very intermittent periods, they don't know whether they've got that, that normal cycle. And that's been the issue for some of the, the runners that I've spoken to is that they were using a contraceptive pill. So they weren't having periods and they didn't know that they weren't, ha that their body wouldn't be having a regular period if they weren't on the pill and that potentially their bone health was at risk. So they feel quite passionately about, about highlighting that, that danger. And, you know, like you say, it's intense and they're young and, and we, we, we need to not harm them. We need to do everything we can to, to give them a good, long, healthy life as an athlete and as, and non-athlete beyond that so yeah really important well i think change is coming and we see it coming through so mm. let's keep our fingers crossed for mm. continued progression yeah i'm grateful grateful for those that are sticking their head up and, and hand up and telling their stories mm -hmm. and some of those were on our podcasts so if you want to go back and listen to oh i will uh, uh uh was it girls running is one mm -hmm. of the ones we did with um melody fairchild Mm -hmm. which is, um, yeah, they talk about that from that point of view. Yeah. Maybe we can finish on a, on a bit of a lighter note. Um, <laughs> Alan has some questions about blisters because you know, the, that's a common problem. I get, I guess blisters are something that everybody has who runs sooner or later. It's kind of comes with the territory, uh, eventually. And, and it was great to see the uh, chapter on skin because it's amazing to look at skin when you explain it at the start of the chapter, what an amazing organ it is, mm. how it how it works, and it never ceases to amaze me as somebody who's, you know, been interested in human biology, physiology. It never ceases to amaze me how absolutely mind-bogglingly incredible the human body is, um, and the skin just goes to uh, emphasize that. But let me come back to um, blisters. Everybody always gives you the advice with blisters, it seems to me, to don't pop your blisters. And, and I get that because basically your blister is sort of a detachment of one layer of your skin and there's some fluid forming underneath. And underneath it's all kind of sterile. And if you pop it, you're mm -hmm. giving yourself a chance for an infection. I mm -hmm. guess that's what the rationale is. So I kind of buy into that. But the trouble is, Often when a blister comes up, if it's got fluid inside it, it hurts. And I think it hurts around the outside of the blister because the pressure of the fluid is pulling your skin apart. Like inside, it's pushing on layers and, and, mm -hmm. and teasing it apart. And then you get soreness or inflammation or, or pain around the outside. And I often find that at that point, if I pop the blister, the pain goes away because it takes the pressure off. So my routine tends to be, 
if it's hurting to pop it, put some antiseptic cream over it and cover it up. And I find I get a better result that way. But every time I read something, it always says, don't, why are you popping your blisters? So I feel really guilty because that's what I do with my blisters. So help me out here, Juliet. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a non-popper <laughs> as well, although I think there are situations when you have to, you have to pop it. You know, if you're on a multi-day event and, you've, and the pain is excruciating and, and like you say, as soon as you pop it, then you relieve the pain um, and you and you can sort of carry on, but yeah, ultimately I, I try to work with my body, and I sort of think it's, it's created like that for a reason. You know, there's a cushion on it uh, with the fluid. The fluid is like you say sterile, so it's creating this nice little uh, greenhouse, if you like. Maybe that's not the right word, but this sort of sealed unit where healing can can go on, where the germs can't get in and there is the cushion of the blister uh so generally uh, i'm of the non-popping camp and yeah they they do hurt but they eventually shrivel up and and go and if you've got an infected blister then it can hurt for a lot longer than a normal blister while it's healing so that's my kind of rationale but understand you know there are times when the, the right thing to do is to pop it but obviously it's popping it with trying not to introduce any infection to it so using like a sterile needle so that you again you're not just inserting something which is which is dirty like the blade of scissors or something or just snipping it with a pair of nail scissors or something um because people do uh mm-hmm. and and like you say putting some antiseptic on and then covering it with something to, to keep it sort of protected and infection free so there are situations when i would pop but generally best thing is not to get them in the first place and then if you do get them i i'm i am a, a non-popper and unless have to <laughs> so sorry that's maybe not what you wanted to hear no it's helped yeah. it's helped a little bit to uh, relieve my guilt popping <laughs> yeah alan has decided that he he had to pop those it was necessary <laughs> yeah that's yeah fine. And as you say multi-day events that's usually where i have the problem you know you've got yeah. a blister yeah. and you've got to run again the next morning there's yeah. no option you've exactly. got to go it's on a sensitive spot and it's hurting yeah doing what you're doing what you can to do it hygienically and taping it up and covering it afterwards is the, is the best that you can do in those those sort of situations yeah because uh, i guess that fluid in your blister is an extremely good growth medium for bacteria because it's sort of probably nutrient full of juicy nutrients that uh, bacteria would uh, like to to get into yeah and they tend to happen in uh, blisters in you know warm moist dark places and and germs love that so yeah and on Mm. your feet where there's dirt as well Mm. yeah definitely okay so that's that's put me in a good place with respect to my my approach to blisters i think (laughs) just to sort of um end things were there any questions that that were kind of like just big questions that you wish you had included, but you didn't include either because you, they didn't make the cut at first, but then later on you thought that it would have been a good addition or that they came up later and you had just forgotten. Um, Was there anything kind of really big that stands out that you think um, you could have included? I don't think it was anything massive. Um, As I say, bunions, (laughs) I didn't put bunions in, but I think, what I struggled with at times was what's medicine and what's training. You know, I'm, I'm a group leader for a, a running club and I lead groups of women. I'm not a sports physiologist or a, a highly trained 
running coach, you know, I do coach some women, but you know, so I needed to just make sure that I stayed within my area of expertise and that it didn't get too technical in terms of training. What I wanted to create was a sort of a useful handbook for all runners that wasn't intimidating. And I think occasionally I talked about VO2 max in it. I think there's stuff about things like heart rate variability and, and training and heart rate zone training where I could easily have have got quite involved and had lots of questions on that, but I was trying to sort of just, yeah, take a step back and think uh, what, what is this? I've, uh, what I'm wearing for this is, is my, my GP, my doctor hats and, and not those, those other hats. Yeah. So I think that, that was the, the thing I struggled with. So if there were any big areas, that was probably things that shouldn't have gone in and, and trying to keep it true to, to, to what it, to what it was. Okay. That's fair. And um, if people want to follow you, um, you know, to see what you're doing or see if you've come out with any other books in the future with all the questions that didn't make the cut to this book, um, (laughs) where can people follow you? Oh, thank you. Best place to go is just to my blog because all my socials and everything are on there. And my blog is drjulietmcgratton.com. And the front page at the moment is all about this book, Run Well, and there's a blog and there's yeah all the other bits and pieces that i'm up to in the in the menu so that'll be great i saw the references to the 261 fearless Mm. global women's running network or fearless running club what's this juliet i'd love to tell you about that i'll try and do do it quickly for you um so um i'm not sure you've heard of Catherine switzer she was the the, Mm -hmm. yeah of course yeah some people haven't so i've never assumed um boston marathon 1967 her bib number was 261 ah people tried to throw her out of well one one race director tried to throw her out of the race but she carried on and in years to come uh women were writing to Catherine and, and saying you know i write 261 on my arm because it makes me feel fearless before I go to a job interview or I've got it tattooed on me and I think it was when the tattoos started that she thought I need to do something with this so she teamed up with a friend of hers who was an experienced running coach and businesswoman and they founded a non-profit based originally in the states and the main aim of this was to empower women through running because as you know yourself once you once you run you realize what other things you can do in life so the main focus of this is running and education and non-pressured social non-competitive running clubs for women particularly targeting women who are inactive and helping them into running but are clubs where all abilities can run together without training for things without setting pace time without you know much more as I say social social running but also are the 261 coaches are trained in running for women so what's different about the female body what different things can they look out for in terms of their pelvis the the angle of their legs running technique for women how to overcome some of the barriers you know we've talked about in pregnancy and periods and menopause so it's very much a, a, a women's specific run training so i help on a global level i'm their women's health expert and I'm also a master coach, so I train the coaches who lead the local clubs. And I'm also a, a coach myself at our local club. So we have, and also in the UK, I'm the director of the nonprofit here in the UK, along with my co-director Lisa Ruggles. Uh, so yeah, so it's a growing move. It's not a movement; it's a network 
using running to empower women. And we have we have clubs in all over the world, five continents. So um, some of the most notable would probably be those in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where women uh, where running is not normal. Um, India, Albania, uh, one starting now in Ecuador, one a new one in Israel, New Zealand, uh, Zambia. So yeah, um, and, and in the US too, obviously. Uh, so it's a wonderful thing to be to be part of, and yeah, I'm re- I'm really proud to be to be part of it, and it, and it speaks. It ticks a lot of my boxes in terms of what I think running can do in and in, in improving health and and equality and just trying to get the message out there and overcome those barriers and so women don't have to run in the dark. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I assume that I assume that people can find more about that by just going to your blog. There'll be references and connections. So if they yeah, want there's to. references in my blog and the global website is two six one fearless.com. And there's everything on there, including Catherine's story, but also all the clubs locally. And we're always looking for women who want to lead these kind of groups, who want to do something separate away from their competitive running and want to help other women into running. So do, do have a look at it, definitely, because we're, we are, we're growing all the time. Such hey. fantastic. <laughs> I'll link that in the, in the show notes. Thank you. Never cease to be inspired by uh, some of the people we talk to on these, on these podcasts. Uh, absolutely amazing. I mean, you, you made a reference to Catherine Switzer. We actually had an interview with her husband, Roger Robinson, yep. uh, about, about his book. So we, we got some sideways insights into Catherine and her exploits. That's a great bit. When Running Made History, yes, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's brilliant. I bought that for my, my son who, and my husband who, who like running as well. So, yeah, fantastic. Amazing. So um, in terms of your book, is there somewhere that um, you'd like, you'd prefer people to go if they want to avail themselves of a copy of the book? I really don't mind where you go. Just wherever you go, if you can leave me a little review, that would be amazing. <laughs> it's really hard to get people to review books. And I know what it's like because I, I mean to review lots and I don't get around to it. So I try my, my hardest now. I'm on the other side of it. But I don't mind where you go. Any any good bookseller, there's the Kindle version, paperback, and there's an audio book as well. So if you're out, if you're someone who likes to listen to things while you run, then you can, you can listen in while okay, you're on great. the move. That's fantastic. And this is not your first book. Is it your last or do you have plans for another book? <laughs> After the first one, I said never again. <laughs> it's a bit like children. Um, but uh, I, I, I did the second one, and uh, I sincerely hope that it's not my that it's not my last because I, I really enjoy the process of writing. I really do enjoy that challenge, and yeah, I've got a few ideas. So watch this space. <laughs> okay, great. And um, you know where we are when you want to um, have a discussion about your next book. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> So I guess we'll just um, give a few of our own thoughts on the book. So Alan, do you want to do you want to start with yours? Well, the book's mass- massively researched. Uh, as I said earlier, um, there are references for everything. So Juliet's credibility and advice is unquestionable. Not just the fact that she has doctor in front of her name, but uh, really the hundreds of references that she makes to the things that she says. She touches. I think many of the key questions, I think a a, a good test for me was as I was reading it, I was saying, okay, a question I would have if you were asking me about this would be X. And invariably the question that I had in my head would come up in the book. So I think it's a good, it's a good sign that I think the things that you're thinking about with respect to your, your body and your health and your wellness uh, as a runner 
is probably going to come up in the book and uh, be discussed and answered in an easy format that you can di digest pretty easily. Uh, there's a lot of interesting facts. I think nerdy facts for mostly guys, you know, did you know where you go, ooh, no, I didn't know that. That's really rather interesting. And, and that's quite cool. Um, and, and just helps you to be increasingly fascinated and amazed at the, at the, the human body. There are some good little simple biology lessons at the start. So uh, they kind of put into context as well, you know, how the body works. So if we're talking about skin, here's a diagram of skin and how all the things in the skin work. How do you sweat? How do you get blisters? Uh, and then you understand it uh, super well. From that point of view, it's kind of fascinating in terms of educating you as, as you go about not only what's happening to you, but why it's happening. All, all in all, uh, an, easy, an easy read, but lots of learning and uh, super relevant. So um, along the same lines as Alan, yeah, I thought it was uh, well thought out. It's easy to read uh, and it's not um, at the expense of being well-researched. And uh, it also included some real runner stories, which was kind of fun. So just examples of, of uh, people with a particular problem that found a solution. Uh, many of the common questions I've heard were answered and also some questions that I that I'd never heard, but it was actually kind of enlightening. So I, I, I really, I really enjoyed that. Uh, the, I like the organization by body system. It kind of makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, when you study biology, that's sort of how all medical books are, are kind of organized. Um, and I think also because that sort of allows for, for that little intersection about each system where you get a little background, but not a background that's too, um, complex. So it's all well, uh, you know, well broken down. Uh, I think that, you know, you, even somebody without a medical background would, um, would be able to understand everything that's in the book. There are very few, like really long medical words. Um, there, I mean, there are occasionally there is one or two, but it's always, uh, always explained first. And then sometimes even referenced back, oh, don't forget that this acronym meant this. And in parentheses, there'll be uh, the, you know, everything spelled out. The, the language was not uh, too medical, but it wasn't dumbed down either, which was, uh, which was nice. So if, uh, if there was like a, like a diagnosis or anything like that, it was explained in layman's terms before moving on, but it, you did, you know, you got the, the, the actual name of the diagnosis. I also like the, did you know, sections, they were a lot of fun. Um, I had no idea that the liver weighs one and a half kilos. And I, I yeah, I'm, I'm still amazed. That's massive. I mean, I didn't know that my liver was that big and it's the only organ in the body that can regenerate, which I also didn't know. So uh, those, those are a lot of fun. So if, if you buy the book just for that section, I think it's well worth it. <laughs> okay. Excellent. I guess we should just thank you, uh, Juliet for, for the time you spent with us today and the insights you've given us. And uh, we look forward to your, your next offerings and uh, get over to your, get over to Dr. Juliet McGratton's um, blog and check out the 261 Fearless. I didn't know that's where 261 came from and uh, I shall be investigating further. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been great to chat to you and I'm so, uh, I'm so delighted with your feedback. It's always really interesting to have, 
people say what they thought and the bits they liked and yeah it really it really helps me to make sure that the next one's even better so I'll, I'll definitely let you know and I've really enjoyed speaking to you thank you so much excellent so thank you for listening to another episode of running book reviews big thank you to the publisher Bloomsbury for providing a review copy of the book and big thanks to Dr. McGratton for spending time with us today If you'd like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast or want to suggest a book that you would like us to review in the future, please leave us a comment on social media. We are running book reviews on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter, we are reviews underscore running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes when they're released, or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Bye for now. Bye.